Talking sports as they report Back and forth from their home court They talk the sports if you're not sure They talk of sports and then talk more About all sports East, West, South, North Ryan talks sports Andrew retorts And George will hear as they both sort Through all the sports they both support The Walk-Ons What's up guys? Welcome to the Walk-Ons Podcast It is Thursday, October 28th I'm Ryan Reeves We've got an awesome show for you guys today World Series is heating up uh, obviously some college football NFL there and we're going to touch on some NBA stories as well also we've got a great guest today Davis Love the third is going to be joining us a little bit later and Andrew Schuster you finally pulled your weight my man I think you, you're the one who set this this interview up with Davis Love the third so it, it's nice to see you thanks for joining the podcast I, know, I mean this is why I'm here every <laughs> once in a while I'll do something slightly positive and I just I keep my stay you know although I guess if we're going to be fair it was really your dad who pulled the strings and not you so that's neither here nor there <laughs> Hey, we have the same last name. It, it, uh, the credit will get lost in the shuffle. Indeed, indeed. All right, well, let's move over to the World Series. We're tied 1-1, Astros, Braves. I mean, this is going to be a good one. I, from everything I've seen in the first two games, uh, certainly looks like it's going to go six, maybe seven, uh, which is great news for the fans out there who really don't care. Uh, maybe not the ones who want to see the Astros just get pummeled, but it is what it is. And I don't know, Andrew, I mean, I'm kind of watching this series and I don't really see much of a discernible advantage right now. I don't know about you. I mean, certainly both offenses are hot. They've got a lot of talent. Um, I would say maybe, you know, prior to game two, uh, before the, the broken femur heard around the world or fibula, um, I would say maybe it's Atlanta slightly just because they're pitching. I mean, you got the Astros rolling out Framber Valdez and Jose Urquidy and somebody else that they pulled off the street. I mean, you had to look at the rotation for Atlanta. It seemed like it was going to be the difference. Now, Charlie Morton, obviously done for, for the series, done for the year. Um, I think it kind of, I don't know if this tips the scales. Does it, does it in your mind? Yeah, and I mean, that, that injury hurts, obviously. Like, you lose one of your best pitchers too, but I'm sure he was a guy that in the clubhouse you just knew could pitch on a, on a day's rest or you could throw out there in any situation, um, especially with that, it being the world series. But you know, the, the, the two things that really stand out to me is one in, in both games, it's the team that jumped out first ran away with it. You know, it wasn't, it was as soon as was one team got hot winning, put a couple runs up and the other team was playing from behind. It, it was, it was game over. Um, and so that's why I kind of feel like there is no clear momentum shifted one way or the other. Obviously it's tied one, one, we're going back to Atlanta, who now has the home field advantage. But I feel like it just depends on each individual game, which team can put the number up on the board first and say to the other team right now, you have to come back and beat us. Um, the other thing I will say, though, is we saw it in the Red Sox series. You know, Houston had that one game of all that offensive output, and it completely shifted the momentum. So maybe there's something there, too, where the Astros get hot in game two, their bats start to wake up, and then suddenly they keep that going for the rest of the series. So if I had to pick, I, I like Atlanta. They, they seem to be, you know, they beat the Dodgers, which is no easy feat. And, you know, that was kind of the team we pegged as the playoffs started as the favorite going forward. And so for Atlanta to beat them so convincingly, I still like their odds. And like you mentioned, their pitching has really been what's gotten them through to this point. And they've had, you know, clutch hitting when they've needed it. So I still like Atlanta, but I will say, as I mentioned, the Houston bats getting hot at the right time could shift momentum. Yeah, and games three, four, and five, obviously going to be shifting back to Atlanta, which is huge. So if you're the Braves, you got to take two out of three. You just absolutely have to. And, you know, I should get this right for Charlie Morton. It's a fractured right fibula, which just sounds painful just saying it out loud. But you got to give a lot of credit to Morton. I mean, obviously that, that play happened. He goes back into the dugout, knows something's wrong, still goes out. 
gets a couple big outs, including that nasty curveball on Altuve. I mean, the guy's an absolute gamer. And, you know, I guess the reports where he was apologizing to the team after the game, you know, they couldn't go longer. He tried to gut it out, tried to give the bullpen, you know, more of time to get to get warmed up. I mean, that's the kind of guy that you want. You know, he's 37 years old. The guy's been kind of a journeyman. He's been injured a lot in his career. He, you know, it's tough to see a guy like that who, by all accounts, is a great teammate, great person, go down and re- what really has been his best season of his career. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the Braves kind of feel like a, a team of destiny here. I mean, it, it's interesting that that bullpen is legit. I mean, certainly they proved it. They, they got, what, 22, 23 outs in, in game two, um, you know, in, in relief of Morton. So, I mean, that is that's a that's a killer bullpen. They're going home for the next three games. I mean, it just feels like this might be, you know, one of those rallying cries, right? Let's win one for Charlie, win one for the Gipper. Uh, but let's let's kind of flip it on the other head, right? Less about who wins. But if the Astros win this series, Andrew, and obviously they're, they are enemy number one, they have been for the last four years. Uh, is this good or bad for Major League Baseball? I think it's got to be bad. Um, <laughs> you know, like I, I know everyone wants them to lose, but when you think about it, like there's really obviously like you'll take the World Series title and you'd be stoked about it if you're a Houston fan. But think about like no matter win or lose, if they win, then they look back at the 2017 title and we can say like, did they really need to cheat and, and really sully what's been a five year dominant run as the premier AL team? You know, we mentioned they've been five straight ALCS with pretty much the same core group of guys. If they didn't cheat, we'd be looking at them as one of the greatest kind of dynasties of the last you know century or so in baseball. And so if they win, obviously it's like, yes, we, we won the World Series, but it, it kind of, you know, shows did they really have to cheat in the first place. But then on the flip side, if they lose, then it's like, well, you only you, you had to cheat to win in 2017. And it just hammers home that notion of that they're the, te- the cheating franchise. Plus, everyone's going to hate that the team that cheated is, is winning. And it's going to feel like they really weren't punished adequately for what happened a couple of years ago and that they kind of got a slap on the wrist and kept going without really any, any type of repercussions. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, it's a bad situation no matter how you cut it. Um, But you've got, you know, you certainly still have some guys on that. I I think that was probably, you hit it on the head, right? It's the thing that was big, it probably resonated the most with, with players and fans around the league is that these players didn't get punished at all. And, you know, here they are enjoying an unbelievable amount of success. I mean, they were in the ALCS five years in a row. Here they are again in the World Series. Um, Yeah, I mean, it just, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. But I do have to give credit. I mean, Jose Altuve, you know, how's this for a stat? He's second all-time in postseason home runs with 22, tied with Bernie, Bernie Williams, just behind Manny, Manny Ramirez, which is a hell of a list. Derek Jeter's down there in third with 20. So, I mean, you got to give credit to these guys. Yes, it seems to be that they cheated, of course. It seems pretty clear. But, I mean, these are still talented guys. Obviously, it seems like maybe Carlos Correa's swan song. He might be gone in free agency. It seems all, all signs point to that it is. Um, I mean, you know, they, they've got kind of their own rallying cry, right? It's, if, if there was ever a team where it's us against the world, the Astros have to feel like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a fun, fun rest of the series. I hope, you know, it goes six. I hope maybe it goes seven because that would be just a hell of a lot of fun. Obviously, I think on this side of the, uh, of the coin, we're rooting for the Braves, but I guess we'll see what happens. I mean, any closing thoughts on the World Series this year, Andrew, before we get to Davis Love the Third? No, I mean, I just, like you said, a seven-game World Series is one of the few times where the ba- a baseball game is the premier event of the night. And so, yeah, seven-game series, let's make it happen. The last one with the Astros and the Nationals was electric, all those late-inning home runs. You know, it's one of the few times where baseball really lives up to its promise of being an exciting sport that was America's pastime at some point. So let's, let's bring it on, six or seven games, but let's go Braves. Because, like we said, there's really no, unless you're a Houston fan, you, there's no clear-cut winner if the Astros win this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of the Braves, let's get to a Georgia native with our interview, Davis Love the Third. We'll be right back. 
Our guest today was a three-time All-American at North Carolina and the winner of the 1997 PGA Championship. He has 21 career wins on the PGA Tour, and he's captained the U.S. Ryder Cup team twice. He'll also be the U.S. captain for next year's President's Cup. He's also the tournament host for the RSM Classic, November 15th through the 24th, through the 21st, excuse me, which is, of course, put on by the Davis Love Foundation. It is Davis Love III. Davis, how are you? Great. How's it going? It's going very well. Hey, we're really excited to have you on. We have lots to get to today, but I want to start with something that you had a lot of experience with, and that's the Ryder Cup. You know, we're a month, about a month removed from the event, but I think the the dominant win by the U.S. is still kind of resounding around the golf world. Certainly, you know, a, a bad taste in their mouths leading up to leading up to this event. You know, they lost seven of the last nine Ryder Cups. But as somebody who's captained the squad a few times, were you surprised at all by how hot the U.S. came out and won so convincingly? Um. I'm very happy about it. Um, not really surprised because of the lead up behind the scenes that I got to see from the team. Um, Captain Stricker had a, a dinner during the tour championship for the six guys that qualified for the team at that point. And um, they were calm, cool, collected, um, you know, bought in totally to what Steve was doing. And then the week before the Ryder cup, they went on a Sunday, Monday, um, after the tour championship week and 11 of the 12 guys brooks was obviously out with his wrist but um 11 of the 12 guys showed up and all the caddies and they played unbelievable golf um on that golf course that monday that i got to watch them but more importantly they were together as a group more than i've ever seen and we've learned over the last three or four Ryder cups that that's what we need to do as captains is not really, we can't help them play. They're great players. Um, we can help them be organized during the week, but leading up to the Ryder cup, we can do a lot better job. And I think Steve did the best job of any captain ever. Plus it didn't hurt that they were all playing great too at the same time. Absolutely. Hey, and along those lines, you know, we mentioned you'll be the captain for next year's president's cup down at Quail Hollow in Charlotte. Now, this isn't your first rodeo captain an international team. You've done the Ryder Cup multiple times, like we said, but it will be your first time doing the President's Cup specifically. So in your experience, do you expect any different challenges that come with the President's Cup versus the Ryder Cup? Or is it just going to be like you said, just do the best to get the guys to play the best golf that week? Well, the expectations, I think that's the word, right? Um, in the Ryder Cup, we're expected to, to not do well and to be playing from behind the eight ball and trying to win the cup back and all those kind of things. In the President's Cup, we've only lost once and we tied once. Every other time, we've it's pretty much been um, either a blowout or a great weekend by the, the U.S. team to um, to stave off a really good international team. So I think we're def we're we're more defending not not having lost it. You know, it's it's um, we're expected to win. Um, the, the international team has gotten better and better. Ernie Els did a great job last time, and Trevor Immelman's going to build on that. Um, but like we started, this team, the core group we have that played the Ryder Cup and will obviously be playing the President's Cup next year is so good. Um, we just have to ride the momentum. So there, there's going to be a couple of different guys. You already look at the list. Sam Burns has you know, knocked somebody out that was on the Ryder Cup team, and he's up there in the middle of the points list. So um, – I won't get the exact 12, but we're going to go in there with the same approach. Uh, it's a home game for us. Charlotte, a lot of guys know the golf course. We won't have to go too early to play a lot. So, yeah, pretty much the same program. We've been running this since um, 2015. We started over kind of with Team USA Golf. 
starting with, you know, Jay Haas's team in Korea for President's Cup team. Jim Furyk and I were behind the scenes building for the future and getting to know players and laying some groundwork. And, you know, we get a little bit better at it every year. But the problem is Ernie Els is getting better at it and Trevor Immelman and those guys, too. So we got to be careful. Yeah, no, no doubt. Well, look, there's a definitely a reason why you've been the captain of the Ryder Cup team a couple of times. You've got the President's Cup, as we mentioned, coming up. Uh, you've got a long list of achievements there. I mean, we mentioned the 97 PGA Championship. You've been ranked in the top 10 for over 450 weeks, which is just an insane level of consistency. But from your standpoint, David, considering that extensive list of accomplishments, do you have a particular career achievement that maybe kind of sticks out to you or you're most proud of? Well, you know, individually, obviously, winning golf tournaments is, is what we're paid to do what we want to do what we live for is is getting a trophy at the end of the week um my little granddaughter is seven years old and she says my mommy won a lot more trophies than you riding horses i go yeah well that's the goal is we want to win your mom won because your your grandpa was pretty competitive and, and wanted really good horses and wanted wanted to help her win and um so individually winning is is what it's all about you know you see brooks you know, picking on other guys and he piles up the major championship trophies behind him and says, yeah, look at, look at this. Um, that's what we play for. But if you say, what is your proudest moment or what, what do you, if somebody says, let's go back and do that again, I want to go back to the 2016 Ryder cup and see that team pull together and win a home game for the first time in a long time. You know, after I was a big part of why they lost in 2012, as captain at, at Medina. And I was been on a bunch of losing teams, both as a player, as a captain. And that was, that was gratifying. Um, those guys were under a lot of pressure. They were a great team and they were supposed to win and they came back and won it. So that, that's always going to be one of my greatest golf memories is standing on the sidelines, watching them celebrate on that bridge at, at Hazeltine is, is going to be ever burned in my memory. And then standing on that stage and, and getting the trophy and having those guys crowd around, you know, and, and taking pictures that th those moments is what we um, team USA golf. That's what we live for is, is coming together and winning stuff like that. Incredible. And, you know, speaking of that extensive list of accomplishments, one thing that our listeners may not be aware of is that on top of dominating on the course, you have quite the resume for designing top of the line golf courses as well with your company love golf design that, you know, is literally designed courses from Mexico to California to the East coast. It's, so can you talk a little bit about what motivated you to get into course design as well on top of your career in golf and which courses were the most challenging for you to design? Well, um, like everything I did in golf, um, you know, my dad obviously was a, a, started out as a tour player, club pro, teaching pro. You know, when he passed away, he was one of the best golf instructors in the world. Um, I grew up on the golf course. Um, so my dad was into everything golf, um, whether it was teaching, playing, um, and he was starting to get into course design. So I figured that, you know, at some point me, a young tour player, him, a, a famous teacher, it was something we could do together. So we started doodling around on that. And he had some friends that were in the business. Um, a great friend of our family, this guy, Bob Spence got us started in the golf design business. My brother, Mark and I, um, you know, tagged along with him as the construction guy. And we just gradually grew from there. We've been doing it for well over 20 years. Um, got 30 plus projects under our belts. Um, the reason now I really like that is because I like the heavy equipment. I like the bulldozers and the excavators. <laughs> Pete Dye told me I had to get on the equipment to learn how to be a golf course architect. So I took that to heart. Um, I like driving the stuff. 
and that's what I'm honestly, if, if, when I retire from keeping score on the PGA tour, or PGA tour champions, um, I'm going to be out there building golf courses, not walking around, waving my hands saying, this is how you do it. I'm going to actually be building the golf courses. I like being out there and getting in the dirt and, um, I love being outside. So, you know, Cabo, um, Diamante is our most famous course, but we built a whole bunch of fun golf courses that a bunch of members and, um, juniors and expert players are enjoying, um, all over the country, mostly in the East. I like to get your hands dirty. I respect it. Well, Davis, we know you're a, uh, a Georgia native, so I'm, I'm guessing maybe you have a little bit of interest in this year's World Series. Of course, Braves, Astros, it's tied at one. Now, it's been a tough run for Atlanta sports in the last 10, 20 years. So let me ask you, let me ask you this. What's your takeaway from the series? Do you think the Braves can actually pull this one out? And if they do, does that actually exercise any of these demons that's kind of plagued this city for quite a while in professional sports? Well, you, you can kind of sum up the Braves with a, a, a line drive off Charlie Morton's leg and he gets a broken, <laughs> yeah. gets a broken leg. Yeah. They were putting up all these stats of, uh, you know, leadoff hitter hitting a home run to start the World Series. How about a stat of a pitcher getting a broken leg off a line drive in the World Series? That, I think that's, that's a new never, one. <laughs> that's never happened before. So, yeah, isn't it? You know, we're, all kinds of teams, whoever it is, the Cubs and all these guys have these jinxes and these streaks. And I was a little kid literally watching Atlanta Braves, Atlanta Falcons, uh, the Hawks, um, two different professional hockey teams. I played hockey growing up in Atlanta. Our hockey teams left town. I mean, it was, it's tough to be an Atlanta fan. So I've hung in there a long time. Arthur Blank, the, the owner of the Falcons is a, is a good friend of mine. Um, I pull hard for all of them. So yeah, to answer your question, there's no telling what can happen, but um, last year we played in a bubble. This year we're playing in front of the Atlanta fans for half the games. Um, that that's going to be the the difference, I think. And this team's young and excited. You know, obviously we've lost a couple of players during the season, and now a pitcher. Uh, it's going to be tough, but it's fun to watch. I'm pulling hard for the Braves, and um, then I'll pull hard for the Falcons and then we'll go back around. <laughs> Hawks had a great run last year. So somebody's got to hit for you. Somebody's got to do it. Yeah. But you know, they're, they're fun to watch. Atlanta's a tough town period. You know, it's, it's a big city of people from all over the place. Now it's, it's the South, but it's, um, you know, people from all over that are fans of other teams. And, you know, I remember the Hawks, the biggest crowd they would get was when Michael Jordan came to town, you know, they, <laughs> if, or some some other star from some other team, then the then the fans would come out because they were all from Chicago or some other city. But anyway, it's uh, it's been fun to watch. I'm going to be pulling hard. I can't wait for tomorrow night another game. Yeah, and along those lines of Georgia sports, I know you're a UNC guy, and I'm you know proud of it too as a UNC guy himself. Um, but UGA has had quite the year, you know, establishing themselves as the best team in football. And this weekend is a big one for the Dogs. You know, they're playing Florida down in Jacksonville, but it's also a big weekend. For St. Simons, as you as you I'm sure you can attest, the Georgia Florida rivalry is a, a big interest for both schools, but specifically at St. Simons, that's where all the Georgia kids flock to, right? So for those listening at home, can you fill the audience in on what a typical Georgia Florida weekend is like down at St. Simons? And do you think the dogs, their dominant defense, can continue their impressive run down in Jacksonville? Yeah, the um the traffic has already hit St. Simons Island. It, it, we wonder if it's gonna be Wednesday or Thursday, but it, it's officially uh here two days before the game and um 
restaurants are full. It, it's it's like we're having the Super Bowl, but it's an hour and a half away. <laughs> it's incredible <laughs> what happens here. And the frat beach, they call it. The, the the college kids love to come here and hang out, even if they don't go to the game. So it, it's really cool. And I grew up, Herschel Walker is on the island tonight, and he's running for U.S. Senator from Georgia. Um, I grew up with watching Herschel Walker. And even though I wanted to play golf and I wanted to go to North Carolina, I've always been a Georgia fan because of Herschel and all the way through my whole family, my, my father-in-law dove and swam at Georgia. We have a lot of bulldogs in the, in the other side of the family. And um, I got a nephew that graduated from there just recently. So yeah, we got to pull for the dogs this weekend, especially. And yes, it's the best. I, <laughs> I've been forced to watch them a lot, like Alabama, because my, both my kids went to Alabama, too. But um, I've been forced to watch them. This is the best defense they've ever had. This is the real deal for Georgia. I hope it's their year. But SEC championship game might be Bama versus Georgia again, which is trouble. Run it back again. Yeah, well, I, I kind of cringe to think about what St. Simons is going to look like after this weekend, especially Frat Beach, as you mentioned there. But I want to keep it at St. Simons. Obviously, your foundation is hosting the RSM Classic there. Uh, tournament's going to be played 18, November 18th through the 21st. Festivities, of course, starting November 15th. Can you just speak to how this tournament came about and what it meant to kind of bringing, that, bringing a PGA event back to your hometown of St. Simons? Well, it's, it started the way, you know, when you get out on tour, you realize it's all about charity. And then you try to do little things to help out other players that are having events. Zach Johnson lives at St. Simons. His foundation from Iowa are in town this week working on the big event that he has in Iowa. Um, so my wife, Robin, and I had a little event on a weekend and a Monday where we'd get some of our friends, Fred Couples and Brad Faxon and Billy Andre, guys like that would come in town. And we'd raise a little bit of money for this one charity, Safe Harbor House um, in Brunswick home for abused and runaway kids well it grew and grew and grew and the next thing you know we said you know the, the only thing we can do now is have a pga tour event take it to the next level and you know a lot of great events have happened at sea island we have the sec championship uh golf championship here we had a lot of mid amateurs and um senior amateurs we had the walker cup at ocean forest which was just incredible um so sea island was Hey, yeah, we're, we're willing to host a, a PGA Tour event. So we put together the group, and um, Jack Johnson actually brought the sponsor. They were McGladry back then. Now they're RSM. They've been an incredible sponsor. Um, I knew enough about PGA Tour events that the best new event built in a long time was Charlotte. Um, I went to Charlotte and stole a guy named Tony Schuster from uh, mm. from uh, Johnny Harris. And, um, you know, Tony um, – I knew him all the way back at um, Castle Pines with the Vickers family, one of the best events on the PGA Tour back then. Um, I got lucky enough to win it a couple of times because the milkshakes were so good out there and the greens were so good. But, you know, your dad just made it made it happen for, for uh, Charlotte. He made it happen for us, obviously builds Tiger Woods event and, um, you know, made it happen in um, West Virginia at the Greenbrier. Um, so we knew who, who we needed. We hired a great tournament director and, um, we're off and running. We are going to go, the tour told us our first year we would lose money and we made money, um, gave money to charity. And now we're, this year we're going to go over $25 million to charity in 11 years. 
which is pretty incredible for we are well they're playing bermuda this week and that's the smallest market on the pga tour but other than that mainland we're, we're the smallest market on the pga tour in the united states and um we're we're happy to um do our little part for charity but it's a big it's a big number in our little town to give that much money to charity every year yeah, I absolutely love it. It's a, it sounds like a great event and certainly for a great cause. So, so good on you for that, Davis. I'm going to go back to back here because I got to ask you, Brooks versus Bryson, the match, November 26th at the Wynn Golf Club in Las Vegas. Now, I know, you know, these guys are cool now. They've hugged it out, obviously, the big win at, at, at the President's Cup last, last month. But I'm hoping from a fan standpoint that it's, there's a little bit of bad blood. But I want to ask you, Davis, one, who you got in this? And two, why are we only playing 12 holes? Why aren't we going 18? I don't know, but... We just built a 12-hole course in Richmond, Virginia, so that must be the new number. Okay. Um, we an old, um, old course that was kind of going under. It, it was a Tillinghast golf course, and um, so we have 12 full holes and six par three holes and a, and a driving range, putting course, short game area. So maybe 12 is the new number, and probably because we don't want to watch it for that long. Because, <laughs> you know, the, the Tiger, Phil, some of these matches have drug on a little bit, so they probably figured – the, the tension span is probably better at 12 holes. Um, I always say if golf took three hours, Lucas Glover would be the number one player in the world because our attention span kind of, we get frustrated if it doesn't go fast enough. But um, right before I called you guys, I saw on Instagram, a Bryson thing. I'm trying out my new prototype driver and he hit a Brooks head off, off sailing the, the driving range. So there's enough bad blood and there's enough interest from what happened. And now obviously with the Ryder cup, but I'll tell you from the inside Stricker said for months, trust me, this is not going to be a problem. They're going to get along. And we had dinner, like I said, at the tour championship, we had dinner whistling straights a week before the Ryder cup. We went in, it was never an issue. And here's something I've loved to, to I've been saying since the Ryder cup, when I was working out with Brooks and Bryson one night <laughs> in our private gym, um, I wasn't throwing quite as much weight as they were, but they were talking about exercise techniques and Brooks was like, what in the world are you doing? And he was, Bryson was explaining to us things that we had never really even dreamed of that thought about working out wise. And it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, what Bryce is doing. He's challenging us to think in a different direction and to see those guys getting along on a Wednesday night during the, during the Ryder cup. If you could have seen that you would have known why we were going to win. Um, because the biggest issue that the media could come up with was them playing against each other on Instagram, you know? And um, so I'm excited to see it just because I love watching those guys play golf and I've been on the inside uh, a lot with Brooks, you know, obviously a lot of teams with Brooks. I've, I watch Brooks and Dustin more than anybody on the teams. That's kind of my little group. Um, so just to make Bryson mad, I'm going to say that I'm pulling for Brooks. I love it. That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. And Hey Davis, we really appreciate you coming on. I have one last question for you. It's much to the chagrin of Ryan and Seamus. They know I'm a big UNC guy. And when I have another UNC guy, UNC guy on, I got to ask. So Obviously, the big storyline with UNC basketball starting up is the new coach, Hubert Davis, replacing Roy. Do you have any expectations for this season? Are you looking for Hubert to do a good job in year one? Well, I was just up playing in Raleigh, Champions Tour event, talked to a lot of my Tar Heel friends. I went over and had dinner with the golf team, who 
by the way, is the number one ranked team in the country right now on some of the polls. So uh, UNC golf's leading the charge. But um, somebody pointed out when I was in North Carolina, said, you need to get your granddaughter's little jerseys because the backcourt could be Davis and Love. You know, you could have a Davis yeah. and a Love on, on the team. So I'm pulling for Hubert Davis because uh, I, I loved watching him play. Um, and I talked to um, a lot of people inside the basketball up there, and they said, hey, they're going in the right direction. Um, this is going to be great. Um, this is not a surprise thing. It's been in the works a long time. So um, if Roy Williams is good with it, I just saw him too at, at Quail Hollow during our media blitz for the President's Cup. Um, <clears throat> I think they're going to be great. I'm excited about it. Um, football, obviously, was a little disappointing this year. It was a, it was a rough start. Got kind of got knocked in the head the first game, and um, it never really came together. But Mac Brown's doing a great job as well, and um, I'm thrilled with UNC Athletics. Davis, this awesome. was awesome. We are out of time, my friend, but we really appreciate you coming on. It's it's one good thing to hear for hackers like me that 12 is the new 18 because I usually gas out by about 12 anyway. So that, that's that's good news to hear. We appreciate you coming on. Of course, the RSM Classic, November 18th through the 21st. You got to check it out. Davis, love the third. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, guys. It was a lot of fun. Likewise. Take care. All right, our thanks to Davis Love III. Be sure to check out the RSM Classic. It's at Sea Island Golf Club in St. Simons Island, Georgia. That's November 18th through the 21st. You got to check that out. It's going to be a great event, certainly for a great cause. Andrew, you delivered double duty, my man. You not only delivered a guest, and he was awesome, so good on you. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, that, I mean, that was great. That, that Brooks Bryson story, I mean, you can't really get that anywhere else. That's true inside knowledge, and we brought it here. Yeah, that's quality. the inside scoop, man. I don't want to hear anybody anybody else reporting on this this overblown rivalry between these two because we got the inside scoop. They're working out together. They're hanging out with Davis Love. They want to play together, so it's all good. We it's all good in the hood. I loved I love that kind of insider information. Well, let's move over to some college football, Andrew. Obviously, an interesting week last week. Uh, I'm not even going to go in on this Illinois Penn State nine overtime game as as historic as it may be. It was even more atrocious to watch. So let's move on from that. Um, although, actually, let's. Let's talk one thing, right? Because this is a bad loss for Penn State. I mean, they were top 10 team, got a chance to challenge, got a chance to go to the Big Ten championship game. All these rumors circling around about James Franklin. Is he going to USC? Apparently, he thinks he's still playing Illinois this weekend at the big house, even though they're playing Ohio State. So he's not even sure where he's going. But I mean, what do you make of this? I mean, is this a loss that's bad enough to where that pushes James Franklin onto another job and out of Happy Valley? No, I think the loss is bad enough that he stays in Happy Valley. <laughs> Um, I mean, that that one, yeah, nine overtimes for the winning team to score 20 points. So keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, his press conference, you have all these USC rumors swirling. Now there's talking to go to LSU. He hired an agent that really kind of pulls a lot of strings in the SEC country. So eyebrows are raised. And he comes out in his press conference trying to defuse the situation. And he's saying, I'm, I'm all focused on Illinois. And he doesn't just say it once. It's not one flub. He says multiple it multiple times. times. And then he says, all my attention were playing at the big house this weekend. Talk about and, a guy. It could not be more clear. His mind is on other matters. If I'm a Penn State fan, I'm like, this guy, I don't want him back, but he's probably going to stay back because he clearly can't handle this situation as well as, as you would like if you're USC or LSU. 
Yeah, certainly doesn't appear to be a guy who's got his eye on the prize as far as it relates to Penn State football. Uh, that was bad. I mean, really kind of hilarious. But yeah, I mean, if you're a Penn State fan this week, you, you're not all too happy. And James Franklin kind of seems like we talked last week about, you know, Lane Kiffin kind of being in basically every coaching search ever. James Franklin kind of feels like 1B to Kiffin's 1A. It seems like Franklin's always in there, always looking for the next thing. So he might have one foot out the door, but he might have anywhere to go because I don't know, he'll probably get lost on the way. Uh, Iowa State beat Oklahoma State. That just reiterates our point, Andrew, that Oklahoma State, not for real. Uh, the Big 12 beating each other up, basically just paving the way for Oklahoma uh, to be the only team with a chance to get into the playoffs representing the Big 12. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but just not blink twice if you're in Milwaukee. No, I mean, the only thing I want to say is, yeah, it's going to be Oklahoma, but I will say they almost lost to Kansas last week, which is hilarious. But my favorite takeaway from that game was they announced Caleb Williams as the starting quarterback. And it was like Bruce Springsteen coming onto the stage at Meadowlands. They, the crowd lost their mind. They, like, if you're Spencer Rattler, you, uh, I can't even imagine to be that guy. I don't want to, I don't want to imagine to be that guy because he sucks, but he's got to just be like, uh, when is the fastest time I can transfer? To Arizona or one of these other schools where I can just put up gaudy numbers next year. Yeah, that was that was a really cool video. Certainly has got to feel good for Caleb Williams. But yeah, on the other end, I'm sure Spencer Rattler is going to handle that with the utmost humility and professionalism. So um, yeah, I'm sure that won't won't bug him at all. Uh, one other game that kind of leaves leaves the door open here: App State beating Coastal Carolina, which was a tough game because I had money on Coastal Carolina. So that one hurt once, but it certainly leaves the door open. Basically, Cincinnati, SMU, those are really the only two teams of the non-Power Five who are going to have any chance to, to kind of muck up the playoff. We'll see about that because SMU's got a big one with Houston this week. Uh, let's look ahead to some of these big games in week nine. Penn State, we mentioned it right there at Ohio State. That is not... <laughs> not the big house, not Illinois, and not what you want as a team coming off a loss to Bacon Bielema in Illinois. So that's a problem. Ohio State's an 18 and a half point favorite. So certainly the betters are siding with us. Do, do you see Penn State having any chance at not the big house this weekend? No, no, no. I mean, we, we can go into it, but I think the short and sweet of it is Ohio State. This is their chance to really prove their back as the dominant Big Ten team. And I think that's likely. And then James Franklin's name will be slowly but surely not in any of the coaching searches. Yeah, it's going to get removed pretty quickly. Uh, well, look, I mean, before that loss to Illinois, to Illinois last week for Penn State, yes, it was Illinois, not this week. It was last week. Penn State, Ohio State seemed like the game of the week, but it's actually shifted over to Michigan, Michigan State. Now, I mean, this is exciting. It's for the Paul Bunyan Trophy. These two teams obviously hate each other. It's only the fifth time they've met since 1964 where both teams are in the AP top 10. So goes without saying, it's a huge game. Uh, it's basically, you know, who's going to have the inside track for the Big Ten representative for the playoff. So who do you like in this game? And, and tell me a little bit about why. Yeah, I like Michigan State because I think that home field factor really is going to matter. Plus they can just run the ball. And that's that in college football still, that's something you really have to be able to do. Um, what's interesting to me about this game, though, is it's a top 10 matchup, but it just doesn't feel that way still. Like, it's a big game, and there's obviously a lot of, you know, things that could happen as a result of, of who wins this game. But I think, to me, this just is a game where whoever wins is, is the one team that now we may have to take seriously, not just for the Big, Ten, the big Ten title, but the college football playoff. I mean, typically when there's a two top 10 teams in a game, it's all that we can talk about in college football. And while it's definitely a big storyline, Neither of these teams really feel solidified as a contender. And so it's it kind of like an empty top 10 game, for lack of a better way of putting it. But it is a rivalry game. Well, you know, when I, when I see Michigan, Michigan State, I always think of that game where the punter 
muffed the punt, allowing Michigan State <laughs> to win on the last play of the game. So maybe we're in for something like that as kind of an exciting way to, uh, to end the game and definitely leave its mark on the college football season. But yeah, my biggest takeaway is I think whoever wins this is now in the driver's seat and they're going to have to play Ohio State at some point to being, you know, kind of that Big Ten uh, West or East team that is in the best chance to advance to the playoff. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. I, I, this late in the season, two 7-0 teams, top 10 matchup, rivalry matchup, and it's really just kind of like, all right, well, let's see who's maybe possibly legitimate and who can get out of, from under Ohio State's shadow. So that's interesting. I mean, look, I want to give a ton of love to Mel Tucker, what he's done with that team. I mean, you look at you know, you look at the roster. I mean, yes, they've got, they've got Kenneth Walker, the third, who is going to challenge for the Heisman. He's an incredible running back. The defense has played really well, but you look up and down the roster, there's not a lot of stars there. That was, a, this is a team that last year at a truncated season went two and five. They looked terrible. They were on the downward spiral. I mean, it was just, it, it was bad in East Lansing and what he's done this year with this team being seven and zero, having a chance to really kind of get that inside track in the Pac-12 impact, excuse me, in the Big Ten, not the Pac-12. Uh, Mel Tucker is certainly going to be up for some coach of the year honors, definitely. And you're looking at me kind of odd, like I just said something that broke your heart, Andrew. What is it? Oh, uh, no, it's just Midnight Mel, you know, as, as a CU Buff quasi <laughs> fan. Mel. His, uh, his, you know, he's sitting at courtside at the CU Buffs game with Philip Lindsay telling the crowd, I'll be here tomorrow and the very next day he's head coach at Michigan State. So, you know, you're not wrong, but he will never sit quite right with me. I guess not, but he's also not the first coach who's ever left in the dead of night after saying, you know, committing to his players and his university and his team. So it's okay, Mel, you're, you're fine with me, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe we won't be seeing him on this show anytime soon, Andrew. I don't know, but let's go to a big game in the SEC. Certainly one that we mentioned with Davis Love the third. Georgia travels to Florida, Georgia with that just absolutely insane defense. I mean, clearly seem to be the best team in the country. Just talent everywhere you look. Oodles and oodles of talent. Certainly, there are going to be some uh, some students partying it up uh, in different locales. So that's, I pray for the residents there in the local communities. Uh, but what do you like about this? Look, Florida is, is reeling this year, right? Uh, Georgia is on the other end of that coin. They are peaking. They are looking as good as they've ever looked under Kirby Smart. It's, but it's a fun rivalry. I mean, these, these two teams hate each other. I had a roommate growing up who, uh, not growing up, but after college, he went to Florida. And I mean, I'm, he's a mild manner dude, but I've never seen him, somebody get so worked up over a game. And it was always Georgia, Florida. That was what it was. They'd go to this bar in Hermosa beach and a bunch of Florida fans doing the freaking chop and just housing Jägermeister it's it's a real scene but what what do you like about this year's game Andrew well, well I mean Florida did challenge Alabama so it's one of those where it's like they can put up to their level of competition but I with the rivalry game I think it's either going to come down to it's going to be a close fought game that's fueled by the rivalry of it all or it's going to be an opportunity for Georgia to really put their foot down and just say we are the team to beat and not just the SEC East but the entire SEC and so I think it's going to be one of those where it's either going to be a close game that, you know, is really exciting and down, and down to the wire, or it's going to be a blowout and Georgia's just really flexing their muscles and saying we really are the team of destiny this year. Yeah, I hope it's a fun game, but I guess might be might be even more fun just to see how many UGA wins by and whether or not Jordan Davis, their, uh, their behemoth defensive tackle, like 6'6", 340, who's actually getting some Heisman buzz. Um, I, I want to see if he actually eats a man on the field. So that would be actually pretty interesting for me. Uh, let's move over to the NFL, Andrew. A little week seven wrap up. I don't even know where to begin on this one, but the Chiefs are reeling. They get rolled by the Titans 27 to three. The defense just doesn't look like they're interested in stopping anyone. I don't know who would be getting in front of Derrick Henry anyways, but that's a bad defense over there. And certainly Patrick Mahomes, he's been giving it to the other team way, way too much. He's already got nine picks this year. He only had six last year. So what is going on in Kansas City? I mean, it, it feels like, look, 
people want to get kind of crazy, right? They're three and four. Like, is this the year the Chiefs miss the playoffs? Yada, 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 yada. But I mean, this is also a team that could rip off 10 straight, right? And finish as a number two or three seed in, in the AFC. So, I mean, is this actual cause for concern or is this just a little, little hiccup in the road, Andrew? I mean, it is cause for concern. When you get beat that badly by a team that you're going to theoretically face in the playoffs and you have a little bit of history with, there's cause for concern. And typically, you know, the, the Chiefs have no problem scoring points. They put up three points in this game. Now, that being Against said... Against a bad, like a not a good defense. Tennessee is not a great defense. I mean, we can simultaneously say there's cause for concern. And again, I really do think it's more of their defense. But I want to pump the brakes on this Mahomes. Yeah, we figured Mahomes out. He's, he's not good. The reason he's turning the ball over so much is because on every play, he feels like he has to hit a home run. The Chiefs' game plan right now is we have to outscore the other team no matter what. So he's taking chances. He's putting the ball out there in plays where if you have a conservative defense or even a competent one and you can trust them, you're not throwing the ball out there like that. And so, yes, he's, he's not having his best year. And the Chiefs are the team I don't think anyone is really looking at still as a Super Bowl contender. But let's pump the brakes on have we figured out Mahomes. The guy is still probably the best quarterback in the league. He's a transcendent talent. And he's just put it, he's in, being put in a bad position. And they're putting too much pressure on his plate. And I just think that's the result of all these turnovers. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, that defense is as bad as I can remember it. They weren't great last year, but they at least start, they made plays, they got turnovers, they brought the ball back. And, you know, we mentioned this at the beginning of the season, the Chiefs went forward through maybe the first six games with three rookies on their offensive line. They replaced the right tackle uh, last week. So try to get some continuity in there. But yeah, I mean, it, you don't want to say it looks like the Super Bowl last year where Mahomes is running for his life every week, but he's certainly not had the kind of time to let guys get downfield and make those decisions as he had in years past. I mean, here's a stat that's worth noting. I just thought this was really interesting since 1996 at least one team that played on championship sunday the year before has missed the playoffs the following year so here's your representatives bucks six and one packers six and one bills four and two chiefs three and four so yeah maybe it's not time to to kind of freak out but that's a hell of a streak over the last 20 25 seasons and the chiefs certainly look like the, the best candidate to to miss out on this year's dance but we'll see speaking of laying an absolute flop last week the Ravens got absolutely dominated at home by the Bengals. Bengals were a touchdown underdog on the road and they went in and they just, they made the Ravens their bitch really. And I think this has got to be the time where you're saying, yeah, the Bengals are a legitimate playoff, if not Super Bowl contender. And look, it's, it's an obvious statement, but I think it deserves to be reiterated. You cannot win in the NFL without getting the quarterback position, right? Clearly they have with Joe Burrow. It's an entirely different team. Everybody wanted to, you know, give them, kind of a little bit of flack for taking Jamar Chase ahead of some other talent, maybe what they needed on defense, but clearly that Jamar Chase, Joe Burrow connection is alive and well. It's made them an entirely different team and it's made them very dangerous. Yeah, no, I mean, that was their coming out party for sure. And it was one of those where if you had just said, oh, the Bengals beat the Ravens, you're still looking at them saying, hey, they're probably a playoff team. They're definitely heading in the right direction. But to come out and dominate them in Baltimore like this and in the second half, just blow the doors off. I mean, I mean, Baltimore was winning in the third quarter and then they end up losing by what 24 points. It's insane. And we all know Baltimore is a legit AFC contender. You know, they, they've had games this year where you're looking at them saying Baltimore is the best team in the NFL. And so if the Bengals can do this in Baltimore and they're just getting their momentum picked up, you said it, you have the quarterback position you know, figured out. They have a star running back and Jamar Chase is already a rookie and he's arguably the best receiver in the NFL right now. So if I'm a Bengals fan, I think the biggest thing holding you back is your ownership, which is notoriously fickle. <laughs> And just hoping that, you know, that just because that they've won a couple of games, it's not like this is all their momentum. They can continue this 
and prove down the line they can compete with the other AFC favorites. Yeah, we were here just last week talking about talking the Ravens up, saying they might be the best team in the AFC after what they did to the Chargers, 34-6 drubbing. And I mean, that's the beauty of, of football, right? Of NFL. That's why we love it, right? At first you think, oh, maybe the Chargers are the best team. They get waxed by the Ravens. Maybe the Ravens are the best. Now they just get waxed by, by the Bengals. So, you know, kudos to the Bengals. It's, it's certainly a, another fan base. We talked about Atlanta. Cincinnati is hurting for a title. So, you know, that would be nice. I mean, it certainly gives them something to, to root for and uh, definitely for the future with Jamar Chase. And, and Joe Burrow back there. Now, one last game that I want to touch on, Andrew, a monsoon in Santa Clara. The Colts take down the Niners Monday night, uh, excuse me, Sunday night. And boy, uh, that was a tough one. Um, look, I'm ready to say it. The Niners are done this year. I mean, they're done. It's officially a rebuild year. Um, but at least now that I know it's a rebuild year, I don't have to get my, my hopes up. It's time to plan for the future. But you know, all this talk about is, is Shanahan on the hot seat. Is he even a good coach? Yes. Stop that. He is a good coach. He goes beyond X's and O's, what he does in the locker room, how he relates to players, how he runs his stuff in the locker room. Um, but right now the X's and O's are not working. I mean, the offense is completely predictable. It's one side. We're basically just going to Debo Samuel. That's all we've got a little bit of Elijah Mitchell sprinkled in. I mean, you know exactly where the ball's going. Huge lack of efficiency from the QBs. I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo granted the weather was awful, but he looked even worse. Uh, and the secondary just refuses to stop. They can't stop, won't stop giving up huge chunks on, on, in uh, defensive pass interference plays. It's, it's tough to watch, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to, to vent. I mean, I did mine last I week. I could go all night. And I feel fantastic. <laughs> I need to right. stop. I washed my hands of the season. Um, you know, he didn't get the pink slip, Vic Fangio, but I think it's one of those where it's like he, he's basically dead in the water. It's a lame duck season from the rest of the way. And so I wanted to give you the chance to – events about your Niners as well. I appreciate that. Yeah, look, I'm not going to say much else, but I think this these calls for Shanahan's job are, are kind of questioning what his ability as a coach. It's stupid. Um, it really just is stupid. I mean, yeah, look, I'm looking at the record. Uh, uh, Seamus put this together for me. I appreciate it. Outside of that 13-3 Super Bowl run, Shanahan's 18-36 and with the Niners. Now, yeah, there were some bad years there, some 6-10s, and tens, a 4-12, and 12, but the one thing that I'm looking at is he's 24-11 and 11 with Jimmy Garoppolo under center. And Jimmy Garoppolo, I'm not even going to say he's a top 10 quarterback in this league. So if you can go 24 and 11 with a guy like that with some consistency, that'd be great, which means he's seven and 28 with the other guys. There's a lot of CJ Beathard and a lot of Nick Mullins in there over the last four years. And that is absolutely brutal to watch. So look, the injuries have been tough. I don't know what it is with that training staff in San Francisco, but they can't keep anybody healthy. We're banged up all over the place. Um, hopefully Jimmy G can write out the season. Cause I think that's just probably the best, but you know, by, by the end, if we lose the next three, four games, you're going to see Trey Lance and maybe that's the look towards the future. So we'll hope for better days in San Francisco. Andrew, let's look ahead to week eight. Obviously the big game, we're finally getting a good Thursday night game. It's going on. It's going to kick off here in about 20 minutes. Um, Packers Cardinals. Now, I was really excited about this game. And then I found out that the top three receivers on Green Bay, Devontae Adams, Alan Lazard, and Marquez Valdez-Scanning, gone. So obviously the first two from COVID close contact, MVD, they're not gonna, they're not gonna activate him again tonight. Now I've heard some of the, you know, some of the noise of the, the Packers are six and zero without Devontae Adams, but I don't think I don't think there's any precedent for losing your top three receivers just before a huge game against an undefeated team at home in prime time. Yeah, and, and, you know, Aaron Rodgers was told that stat this week, and he said, yeah, I'd rather have him out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would too. You could be 20, you know, without Devontae. Yeah. I'd rather have um, Devontae. No, yeah, I mean, it's a bummer. I saw this pop up on the schedule last week, and I got genuinely excited. I was like, this is the first Thursday night game I'm really pumped to watch. And then, 
you know, they, they lose all the receivers and obviously they still could win, but this to me just feels like, you know, it, it's going to be another Cardinals win and they're going to be able to say, oh, we beat the Packers, but everyone's still going to be shaking their heads saying, I still don't know if we can take you guys for real, even though they do have a couple impressive wins, you know, they, they went and tossed the Rams, they beat up on the Browns, you know, but it, it just, it's so odd to me that they're, they're in this position. They have Kyler Murray, who's an MVP. He's in the talk right now, but you wrote on the document, they're still the Cardinals, you know, if they're the still Steelers, the Cardinals. If the Steelers or the Patriots or one of these, you know, kind of household team names um, were eight, no, we'd be saying, "Hey, look out! This, this are they on their way to a seventeen and zero season?" But because it's the Cardinals, you know, my, I guess just I, I wonder what what is it going to be that finally gets them the league respect that they are so clamoring for. Yeah, man, I, I got to be. I look that that is what it is. You are who who you are, and the Cardinals are themselves. I mean, they made this bed. Uh, it's been a long, long run of not a lot of good teams in Arizona, and even the ones that were good, they still didn't really get that respect. It just it look. I don't even know if they if they go sixteen and one this year if they're going to get respect until they actually win a Super Bowl. It just is what it is. But I mean, obviously, the talent on offense is undeniable. The defense is playing lights out. That it's going to hurt losing JJ Watt, which you got to feel bad for that guy. But it, you know, he's he's that's kind of what you get with JJ. You get four to six good games, and then you'll see you next year. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what would make me take Arizona seriously, but unless they win a Super Bowl, it really just is what it is. And as far as tonight's game, look. I'll never count Aaron Rodgers out just because he's Aaron Rodgers. He might find a way to just slice and dice and, you know, equanimia St. Brown got three touchdowns tonight, but if nothing, it'll at least be good fodder watching him yell at all these young receivers for running the wrong routes. Uh, let's move over to Titans Colts in a little AFC South tilt. Um, obviously both teams had a pretty, pretty slow start to the season, but both are kind of ramping up. Now the Titans certainly are looking really good after two big time wins over the bills and chiefs. Um, I mean, can the Colts stop Derrick Henry? <laughs> you know, that's, it's, it's, you know, I, I feel like at this point we have to assume Derrick Henry is going to have a 200 yard rushing game until we don't see it. But I do know Indianapolis does have a solid defense. You know, Darius Leonard is a great linebacker. And obviously they're as a division rival. If anyone knows the ins and outs of the, of the Titans, it would be the Colts. But I just love that how three weeks ago, it felt like both of these teams, like I, I would joke, why does the AFC South get a team in the playoffs? And now it's like kind of slowly, but surely looking like they might actually have two teams that make the playoffs again. So I want to, you know, swallow my, my word and say, Hey, the AFC South, you proved me wrong. But, you know, as, as someone who, you know, had a team in the fight until just a couple weeks ago, um, I, I would like to see both these teams make it over Kansas city. So I'm just hoping that the Colts can, even if they don't win this week, prove that, Hey, we are a team to be reckoned with, even if we don't actually beat the Titans and, I think that's possible because the Titans have showed the last couple of weeks they're also a contender in the AFC. Yeah, I certainly like Tennessee. I mean, I picked them on our uh, our prediction show a couple of weeks ago, basically saying they're the they're kind of my sleeper pick for for the Super Bowl this year. So love to see that. I mean, you give the Colts credit. Yeah, like they're getting healthier. T.Y. Hilton's coming back. Carson Wentz hasn't looked so bad under Frank Reich. That defense is obviously legit. So um, yeah, I mean, this will be a fun game. And yeah, I certainly would love to see both of these teams in the playoffs over the Chiefs because I'm kind of getting sick of Pat Mahomes, even as cool as he is. Uh, but Andrew, while we've got a couple more minutes, let's just talk on some some key points here with the NBA. I mean, probably my favorite is the ball brothers, Charlotte and Chicago are at a top, a top East Are either one of these teams, even remotely good enough to be basically be contenders in the NBA. I don't know. Not contenders. They're exciting, but I, think, but I, don't I think exciting playoff teams that if you're a Brooklyn, if you're a Milwaukee, if you're a Miami, you don't want to play in the first round. Um, you know, I, I think we're, we're seeing the start of a really nice run for Charlotte 
I mean, when you get a transcendent player, even if you're not necessarily ready to do it in year one or year two, you know good things are going to happen for that franchise. Charlotte has suddenly become a very fun team, not just to watch and follow on League Pass, but if, if you're a free agent, you're like, I'll go play in Charlotte. I know Michael Jordan doesn't have the best track record as an owner, but you still get to play and work with MJ. You have one of the most exciting young players in the league, and you have a bunch of really fun, exciting guys. Miles Bridges is balling out this year. Gordon Hayward is proving he is a really good role player on a, on a good playoff team. And, you know, it's clear that Boston really missed him last year once he left. I think Charlotte, if they can avoid injuries, can be a really fun team. And then Chicago, all of their free agency acquisitions – even though we, they were a little bit mocked, oh, you got a couple of guys who are over the hill, DeMar DeRozan. It's, it's coming together well, and obviously it's still so early, but I think both teams have the intangibles that show like they are playoff teams, and I think they're going to be really fun to watch all year, and they could, you know, put up maybe, – maybe they have like a Hawks-like run like last year where maybe they make the playoffs, no one's really, you know, expecting much of them, and they go out and win a series or two. So just a couple really fun teams to keep an eye on. Yeah, nothing else. They're fun and exciting. They're good for the NBA. They've got some g- great guys to watch. And it's fun to see some some new blood here on the scene. And certainly Charlotte's been aching for Chicago ever since MJ left. Um, so it's nice to see a couple teams that n- n- normally at the bottom of the standings at the top so far. Uh, a couple other big stories. Obviously, I've got my Warriors are back, diatribe, locked and loaded, but I'll save that for another day. Um, they are impressive. Certainly, Steph looks like Steph. He's looking like another MVP season. I mean, and you've got the cavalry coming, right? Clay Thompson's coming back on Christmas. James Wiseman hasn't played yet. Jonathan Kaminga hasn't played yet. They made some nice free agent pickups with Iguodala and Otto Porter. So it's, it's nice to actually have something to root for in the NBA this season. On the other end, the, uh, the Lakers, AKA the 2012 starting Western conference all-stars are looking real bad. Uh, they blew a 26 point lead to the thunder last night, who very well may not win more than 10 games. Uh, certainly Russ is a little salty. He didn't like that last the steal and the layup at the end of the game. But I mean, I don't want to, it's way too early to panic, but I mean, this could definitely be sort of a sign of things to come, Andrew, don't you think? I mean, that team ain't getting any younger, that's for sure. And they certainly ain't going to be playing any defense. So I don't know. No. Yeah. I mean, it's not time to panic, but there are some definitely things to be worried about if you're a Lakers fan. I mean, what we're five games in and LeBron's already been hurt and he's missing out games. I mean, that's only going to hurt their chemistry in the long run. You know, so much of the talk is, oh, they're going to need some time to figure out the chemistry with all these players they're all hurt and injured and not playing together that's going to just keep getting dragged out and, and we mentioned offline no one's playing defense you're not no going to defense. be Carmelo Anthony to go play defense at this point in his career <laughs> Russell Westbrook even though he's athletic and makes all these flashy plays is clearly a hindrance to their offense and it just it's it, it looks good on paper all these big names and all these guys that made the NBA 75 team but that doesn't actually mean it's going to work together in 2021 especially with the Western Conference is stacked yeah, because they're all closer to age 75 than they are to anything else. Exactly. And <laughs> the thing is, is like the, the Western Conference has like a, a solid group of teams that you could each make the argument of finishing over the Lakers, even if they do finish their figure their stuff out. I mean, we have on here John Morant falling out with the Grizzlies. I mentioned last week, I think the Grizzlies really have the potential to shock some people this year and, and miss the play in completely. So, you know, it's not time to panic. But if you're the Lakers, you definitely this is about as worse as it could have gone for the first couple weeks of the season and about as sweet as it can be for me sitting in this chair. Cause I absolutely love it. But Andrew, let's wrap this thing up. Let's go to our dudes and duds. Who's your dude. All right. I'll be quick with this one. Cause we've already mentioned him, Charlie Morton. I mean, we mentioned the fractured fibula to me. What kills it though is, is he gets the, the one hopper off his leg and he reacts like if, if you, you know, bump me to someone or it's just, Oh, that's going to be a bad bruise, but Hey, I'll, 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 you know, tough it out. Proceeds to go out there and pitch six more pitches, pushing off that leg, 
strikes out Jose Altuve, who we mentioned is, you know, one of the greatest postseason hitters of all time. And then even when he came up short, you're like, oh, maybe, he, you know, strained a hamstring or did something to one of his muscles. And then it comes out, he broke his leg. The guy's 37 years old doing that. I mean, just talk about toughness. I mean, they're going to miss him the rest of the series, but definitely that is a memory for the Braves in, in this World Series. Yeah, huge shout out to Charlie, Charlie Morton. That dude's a warrior. All right, my dude, Seattle Kraken. I'm bringing him back. I am high on Kraken. I cannot get enough. I absolutely love what these guys are doing. I love, first of all, the look is great. The fact that there's a team in Seattle is great. Um, I just, I, I love a good, uh, you know, new team on the scene, which is exciting. But this is one of my favorite things. Now, there, I don't know if you know about this, Andrew, but in the NHL, there's sort of a, a ceremonial thing, if you will, after every game, they've got the three stars, they announce them, they come out, they throw a puck or, a, you know, whatever to the, to the fans, and then they skate off. It's the same old boring thing, and it has been for 20 years. Well, the Kraken decided to do something a little different, of course, as an ode to Pike Place Market. The, the three stars in the postgame each threw a stuffed salmon into the crowd, which is a nice little touch. And, you know, it makes sense. I was trying to figure out, like, who, who are these guys who are actually running this creative department? Because it's interesting. It's actually the same two dudes who did all the, the same creative team as the Gold nights which as we know they have one of the coolest most electric intros to to any sporting event ever so i don't know who these two dudes are but you need to get them every kind of award for creative creativity that exists i mean it's freaking awesome i love it i hope to see more throughout the season all right andrew who's your dud yeah and then to go off your your last comment maybe the guys throwing the salmon up and go play quarterback for the seahawks this week (laughs) yeah man i could use somebody Um, who can sling it yeah, all jokes aside, though, I mean, a couple options for the dud this week. I mean, we mentioned James Franklin. We could also talk about the NFL and, and what is clearly a cover-up of what's going on with the Washington football team investigation. So bad. We already talked about it with John Gruden. Plus, I'm sure there's going to be more information that comes out. So let's save it for a later date. Um, the thing I want to touch on is also in hockey. And for those that don't know, in 2010, during the, the first of the Blackhawks run in the Stanley Cup, a Blackhawks prospect who just came out yesterday that he was the John Doe in this investigation Kyle Beach was sexually assaulted by then video coach Bradley Aldrich, which is, is disgusting in its own right. And after Beach filed a lawsuit, not only did he make the assault known to the team, but Chicago took no action, instead keeping Aldrich on staff, allowed him to spend a day with the Stanley Cup after they won that offseason, letting him do the Stanley Cup parade and everything, really keeping him in, in tight with the team. And even gave him a positive job reference when he left the team, making no marks about the fact that he has had sexual assault claims brought up against him. Beach made it well known that the team valued the, the championship of taking action to address the sexual assault. And as of you know, right now, the Blackhawks GM, Stan Bowman, had to step down. The organization was fined $2 million and released a statement that said that they were completely in the wrong for overlooking this, for not taking action swiftly enough. So it's not a question of did this happen or did this not happen? It happened. And they acknowledged that they were in the wrong for doing so. But this is not an adequate punishment for actually overlooking something as serious as sexual assault. And you know, the NHL had to put out a statement addressing this type of culture in every single organization this week to make sure this isn't happening again. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's sickening that this happened. And Joel Quinville, who's the Florida Panthers coach, was the coach at the time. And it's become clear that he probably knew about this, even though he didn't say, even though he said this summer, he knew nothing about it until this year. And I just think we're going to keep seeing some head roll. And it's just sickening that this type of stuff is still happening in sports and people are, look, are actively looking the other way. Yeah, it's an ugly, ugly story, and it's only going to get worse. But um, hopefully, uh, for for Kyle Beach's sake and and all those out there who have who have dealt with sexual abuse, 
Um, hopefully some justice will be served, but I'm going to keep it a little bit lighter, Andrew, because that was heavy, my man, uh, my, my dud, or could also double as a dude out of the week. I don't know which one, but the woman who tried climbing into the Ravens broadcast booth last week, if you actually listen to the audio, it's pretty incredible. Uh, they're calling the Ravens Bengals game and a woman tried climbing in and basically said, quote, I'm a veteran and I need a drink. Well, ma'am, I don't know how absolutely slammered you have to be to think that the broadcast booth is a bar or a place where you can get a beverage, but it certainly is not it. Uh, stay out of the booth. Um, hopefully you were able to find something, maybe a little Schlitz or uh, a shot. I don't know. God bless you, but stay out of the booth, ma'am. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Andrew Schuster, Ryan Reeves. Our thanks again to Davis Love the uh, Third. Thursday, October 28th, 2021. This is the Walk-Ons and we are out. The walk-ons.